So today, this morning, uh, we are in the book of Titus. We're in the book of Titus. Um, and we'll be covering just a few verses here. Uh, you know, he gave us the freedom to choose the passage that we wanted to, to speak on. And this has been a very significant passage for me. Um, hopefully, that'll come through in what I have to say uh, this morning. But if you can all turn to Titus chapter 2, I believe it's on, is it 1058 of the Pew Bibles? 1058. So starting in uh, verse 11 of chapter 2. I'll read it for us. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Father, your word this morning brings us back to the wellspring of grace. We pray that you would help us not to take for granted the miracle that your grace has appeared through Jesus, bringing us salvation, and grow the longing in our hearts to see the day when we see your face. Press the word on our hearts to come away with a deeper impression of your work of salvation in us each day. Use it to train our church, our homes, and our culture, and help me now to stand behind your word as you teach us through what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's an ongoing debate about which river in the world takes the title for the world's longest river. And up until the, the year 2007, so just a little over 10 years ago, um, you might have said the Nile, the Nile River in Africa, was the longest river at a little over 4,200 miles. But in 2007, um, there was a, a study that was partially funded by the Brazilian government, uh, which used an alternative measuring method. And I think it's a legitimate method. They're, they just weren't making st stuff up. But they found the Amazon River to be just slightly longer uh, at 4,300 miles. So it, it edged out the Nile and took the place's longest river in the world by uh, just a little less than 100 miles. So when someone asks you, what is the longest river in the world? The, the answer might not be as simple as you might think. The longest river title could depend on your measuring technique or even your political loyalties. But when it comes to the measure of a river's volume or the amount of water that's, in a, that's moving in a river, there, we have a runaway winner, winner. And there's absolutely no question that it's the Amazon River that takes the title as the most massive river in the world. Its average discharge is over 200,000 cubic meters per second. And so to put that into a kind of a measurable context, that's like 83 Olympic-sized swimming pools being dumped into the Atlantic Ocean every second. And so that's a, a massive river. So now imagine yourself standing at the banks of such a mighty river. The waters come down from the distant mountains, and it seems like the river has an inexhaustible source, and that there's no beginning or end 
to this river's flow. You know, I think that's what approaches what the hymn writer um, was thinking about when he wrote um, the words to his famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And we sang it this morning. Um, and there's just so much more in this hymn that I didn't really think about. But the, even the opening lines of this, of this famous hymn says, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. And I also want to just point out the last verse here because it really hits on um, sort of the point of our passage today, and hopefully that will come through. You know, it, it speaks of a future day when we'll be freed from sinning and we'll, we'll finally get to see Jesus' lovely face. He'll be full arrayed in blood-washed linen and we'll be singing of this sovereign grace. So there is this idea that we get to taste of this ceaseless river today, and we also get to look forward to this future day when we get to experience this grace in full. So my hope today is to take us to the streams of mercy that we're singing about in this hymn. And uh, this text in Titus shows us that, and hopefully um, I, I can, we can see how this leads us to result in, in songs of praise. So going back to our text, in Titus chapter 2. What we have in these, these uh, four verses, these four verses uh, of Titus is the core motivation or the lifeblood of what goes into godly living. It's the ceaseless stream of mercy, God's grace in Jesus. So this passage contains one of my favorite statements about the gospel because of its simplicity and its clarity about the, the dynamics of grace. Yet at the same time, I feel I need to be careful because when we come across passages like this where, you know, we feel like we know what it's talking about and we, it's kind of words that we've, you know, tossed around here and there, we can get carried away or kind of gloss over it because of its familiarity. And I don't want to take for granted the amazing truths that are packed here in these verses. So many of you might know um, Pastor Tim Keller. He, he pastors in New York City. Um, and he's known for his saying that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but it's the A to Z, the A to Z of Christianity. Grace through Jesus is sufficient to save us from the penalty of sin, but it's also effective to free us from the power of sin. And that's the sort of mindset that we need to have when we come to a passage like this, where it seems to be like Gospel 101. So before we jump into the text itself, which occurs right in the middle of this book of Titus, um, I want to set us up with some background and some context um, that'll hopefully help us in understanding uh, where uh, this, these verses are coming in. So this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his disciple Titus, who he left on the island of Crete to build up and strengthen the church that was there. Uh, so in this short book, Paul instructs his disciple Titus to establish godliness in the life of the church through the teaching of sound doctrine that is rooted in grace. So sound doctrine that's rooted in grace. And it's that last part, rooted in grace, that our passage focuses on today. So major sections of the book of Titus are instructive. They're commands or they're exhortations to, to live a certain way or to behave a certain way. 
Um, and this is where Paul gives direction to Titus and the church. So if anything, there's no shortage of application if you read through the book of Titus in its entirety. Um, and there are clear applications for BBC that flow out of this section of scripture. Uh, you'll read about older men and younger men and older women and younger women and servants and their masters. And so, I mean, I think we all fit into at least one of those categories. Um, the letter certainly has a focus on godly living and good works. But what we want to be careful of here is missing the basis or the theological realities that form the foundation for Paul's instruction. So how many of us in our lives as Christians have experienced weariness, discouragement, and joylessness in trying to live out the instruction of the Bible? Or maybe we find ourselves just not able to muster the willpower um, to do what we know we should be doing. Godliness just seems to be out of reach sometimes. Well, if that's how you feel, here's the good news. If you found yourself to be incapable, then that's the first step to recognizing that you need God's enabling grace. You've recognized that you need outside help. So, uh, in preparing for this message, I, I reviewed some material that I had um, and this is a, a reminder that uh, when, when uh, such, there was, there was some instruction for, for preachers, and it said that we don't want to bury the enabling grace of God under a mountain of do's and don'ts. So following Jesus is not a set of rules. It's not a set of do this and do that, or behave this way, or don't behave that way. Because a life that's built on a mountain of do's and don'ts will ultimately cave because there are no roots to, to provide the nourishment to fuel that ongoing obedience. So in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we see that God's grace through Jesus teaches us, or first it rescues us, and then it teaches and trains us to be godly people who live in the hope of Christ's return. And so my main goal this morning, my main exhortation for us this morning, is to root your living in God's grace. Root your living in God's grace. And to drill down a bit deeper and to unpack uh, the parts of this, of this text, these are the three main points that I want, I'd like to lay out. And they all start with root your living in God's grace. So first, root your living in God's grace revealed through Jesus in the past, verse 11. So root your living in God's grace revealed through Jesus in the, through Jesus in the past. Second, Root your living in God's grace that trains us to live godly lives in the present. So grace that trains us to live godly lives in the present, that's verse 12. And then third, it's root your living in God's grace that holds out hope for the future. Grace that holds out hope for the future, and that'll be in verses 13 and 14. So let's start with the first point. Root your living in God's grace revealed through Jesus in the past. Grace revealed through Jesus in the past. Looking at verse 11 again, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So verse 11 begins with the word, you'll all notice it, for, right? And when we see the word for, it's, it's pointing back to something that came before it. So in order to fully understand what this text is saying, we need to look back to what, what immediately comes before verse 11 to understand what the command is. So I'll just paraphrase uh, the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 here. But Paul, in, this, in these 10 verses, 
commands older men to be models of self-control, dignity, faith, love, and endurance, and for the younger men, likewise, to follow that example. And then Paul also instructs older women to be reverent in their behavior, self-controlled in speech and demeanor, and to train the younger men, or sorry, the younger women in the church. And to the servants, he urges them to be submissive and well-pleasing to their masters. So what is the effect of living by this pattern? Look with me at verse 10. It says that God's word is adorned. God's word is adorned. So godly living adorns the gospel, or it's harmonious with, it decorates the gospel. That's, that's sort of the literal meaning. The idea is that it highlights the rightness and the beauty of the gospel as it works itself out in living and in attitudes. And that's what Paul is saying here is the result of, of godly living. And so now we get to our text in verse 11, and we'll find the reason, the motivation for living in the manner that Paul instructs in verses 1 through 10. So read it again. It says, For the grace of God has appeared. It's the appearing of God's grace that is the reason for our living by the pattern that's described in the first part of chapter 2. All right, so grace has appeared. It first appears in the form of a past event, and that's namely the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the original language, this word appear, it carries the idea of shining upon someone. And it's, the word, it's where we get the word epiphany, the English word epiphany from. In the English dictionary, um, epiphany is defined as an appearance or a manifestation of something, especially of a divine being or a savior. And that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus appeared as a savior. So, you know, as I meditated on this, I, I think about the light and the warmth of the sun. And, you know, you see it soaking up everything under its rays. And I'm reminded of God's common grace um, in this experience of, of, you know, the sun that God gives us. Common grace doesn't require anything of the recipient, but it all depends on the generosity of the giver. We can't take any credit for the appearing of God's grace any more than we can take credit for the sun shining on us. It was completely by God's pleasure that he caused his grace to appear at all. And we see this also a few verses down um, in, in Titus chapter 3, verse 4, where there's almost an echo of, of this statement. It says, The kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. It's the same word, appeared. And we'll come back to this idea again um, in verse 13 um, of our passage, and that'll be in, in the third point. So grace has appeared, but we also see that it brought something with it. Okay, so look at the text again, verse 11. It brings salvation for all people. So the offer of salvation is on the table for all people. And if you're hearing this message today, it's offered to you. Grace is active and it's available. And it's the agent by which salvation is offered to you, to me, to all people. This is what Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 11, says. It says, Everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the Lord, on the name of the Lord, will be saved. 
So what are we saved from? And I ask that somewhat rhetorically, but if you're here today and you aren't a follower of Jesus, then this actually might be a genuine question from you. What do you need to be saved from? Well, the Bible begins with the story of God who existed from eternity past and whoever will be creating all things and sustaining all things under his power. The crown of God's creation was man because he created man in his image. This is what Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says. It says, so, he, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So you and I are bearers of God's image, created to enjoy our creator and to find our ultimate happiness in him. However, what happened? Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God, right? By eating of the tree that God had specifically forbidden. And since that point, mankind has been afflicted by the effects of sin. So you and I are natural born sinners, which is why we sin. This is Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none that is righteous. There is none who is without sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the punishment for sin is eternal death and hell. And God, in his perfect holiness and justice, must punish sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this is where God's grace enters. This is where Titus chapter 2, verse 11 enters the story. In the place of ruined sinners, God's grace appears in Jesus. And Jesus takes our place on the cross and rises again to conquer death. It's by his grace, through personal faith in his grace, that salvation comes. So pastor theologian uh, R.C. Sproul uh, wrote that the grand paradox or supreme irony of the Christian faith is that we're, we're saved both by God and from God. We're, save, we're saved both by God and from God. It's also the best news that man, mankind has ever received. You know, we see in verse 11 that we're indeed saved by God and the appearing of Jesus for it's his grace that brings salvation. But we're also saved from God. God, in his perfect holiness and justice, will render judgment on sinners for every sin. And make no mistake that every sin, every offense that's committed against God is deserving of his just wrath. So when we say that we're saved from God through the appearing of his grace, we're talking about God's righteous and pure judgment. So the grace of the past justifies us before God, or in other words, it makes our standing right before God. So when God sees us, he sees an innocent person. Once you're covered by the blood of Jesus, he gives you, he clothes you with his righteousness. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. You know, these are the hallmark lines from maybe the, the best-known hymn in the world. But don't miss the truth in these famous lines, that amazing grace appeared, amazing grace appeared, bringing salvation to the wretched sinner. But grace is not a one-and-done thing. 
It brings salvation from the penalty of sin. But now let's go on to see that grace is ongoing salvation, so to speak, from the power of sin. So let's look at verse 12. Um, the first point was to root yourself in God, in, to root your living in God's grace revealed through Jesus in the past. So now, second, we'll see that we root our living in God's grace that trains us to live godly lives in the present. Grace that trains us to live godly lives in the present. Verse 12. It says, Instructing us <clears throat> to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. So this is describing grace working in each of you at this very moment today. If you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, this describes what is happening on a constant daily, moment-by-moment basis. And the result of this grace working in you, training and instructing, is what? As we saw in the beginning of verse, or chapter 2, it's godly living or good works that adorn the gospel. So we aren't left to our own devices to live according to the pattern of holiness that Paul describes in chapter 2. So jumping off the springboard of past grace, we're not left to then figure it out on our own. And you've all seen those cartoons, right, of Wile E. Coyote. He's running. He launches off a cliff, or maybe he's in some sort of, like, airplane apparatus, and then he, the engine kind of sputters out. And then he looks down, and he realizes he's standing on thin air. And then you know what happens. Gravity does its thing, and, you know, the next scene, he's, he's at the bottom of the gorge. So that's a faulty view that we can have of our lives without a complete view of grace. It's not grace that just launches us off the cliff and leaves us, leave us without resources. Grace is the fuel for our ongoing daily living. So thank God that he provides not only the grace to save us, but also it goes on to train us. If you have another, a different translation of, of this verse, you might see instead of instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust, it might say training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Or the NIV says, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So the word here is parenting, as in disciplining a child. So if you're a parent of young children, like I am, then you, get, you begin to get a picture of how grace trains us. But parents, even with the disobedience and the ongoing discipline issues, have you seen the results of training over time? It's slow, but it's progressive. Training is not an event. It's really a lifetime. And we're all students in the school of grace. For those of you who have been walking with Jesus for a good part of your life, or maybe even just a few years, do you understand and feel God's grace in the same way that you felt and understood it when you first believed? Or is it more deeply rooted in his promises that you've grown to grasp more fully through pain and through trial. When I think back on my training journey, I've come to view grace in different shades as it's been pressed on life's different circumstances. God, in his sovereign providence and wisdom, ordains the unique struggles and the trials that he places in your life, and he calls us to let grace train us through them. We all have different training stories, but we can be sure that there's grace enough to train us through each of them. There's grace enough for physical ailment and bodily suffering. There's grace that trains 
us through changing our appetites from base and vile things into hunger for him. There's grace that trains us to see beyond our immediate circumstances and to hold on to future promises. So as many, as, as many um, of you in our church family know, um, my mom passed away earlier this year after a nearly 10-year struggle, 10-year-long struggle with Alzheimer's. Her early symptoms were a bit perplexing, but once it became clear that she was terminally ill, I found myself initially grasping for reasons or explanations or solutions. I didn't, or at that time, I couldn't see God at work in this. And so over the years, as my, continue, as my mom continued to slip away, God would be giving me more of himself, helping me to see his presence and his control um, all the way through. The, the last few weeks of her life in the hospital and under hospice were probably the most difficult as it would seem that the, the disease would finally win. And I wrestled, against, I wrestled again with God's goodness and his wisdom in taking my mom this way. And I could hardly even remember who she once was as you know, her, her memory had faded and how she was just a shadow of the person that she once had been. And when I was tempted toward unbelief and to doubt God's goodness in this, it was grace that invited me to rest in God's wisdom. And specifically, he reminded me of, of this verse, um, Genesis 18.25, where it says, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And grace was, and it still is, uh, training me to fight against unbelief and to trust in his promises. The Apostle Paul, the author of, of this letter, knew this training grace personally as well. He was once a Pharisee who lived only for himself. But what happened? God's grace wrecked his life in a good way to the point where he could only pursue one goal, and that was knowing Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 13, Paul writes, Forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. He put off the praises and the commendation of this world. And he had actually a lot of things to boast about, a lot of credentials to boast of. He put off all the allure and the lust and the passions of this life and strained toward the only goal that he considered worthy, which is to know Jesus. So in this life, while we're present in these bodies of flesh, we'll all continue to feel that natural, fleshly draw and attraction towards the things that are not of God, but of the world and of the flesh. The Bible says that godlessness or ungodly living is actually characteristic. It's the default mode of people living in the last days. Lusts and passions, these are the internal idols that the untrained, undisciplined man is controlled and even mastered by. And so without the instruction and the training of grace, we become slaves of that which holds us be it self-glory or self-preservation or fleshly desires, all of these gratify the desires of the flesh and may bring pleasure for a fleeting moment, but will ultimately lead to death. So put off the lust of this world and let grace train you to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way. Do you want to live in light of the truth? Do you want to live in light of reality, really? What the text is saying 
is that without an ongoing experience of grace in your life, you're li we're living a deluded life. And indeed, there's no way that we can live sensibly if we're out of touch with God's reality. It's not possible to do good works or to please God without grace training us to do so. And this is the reality of the present age that we're living in. You know, this is an era that's under the influence and the dominion of Satan, as scripture says. So as long as you and I, brothers and sisters, exist as followers of Jesus in this present age, we will continue to experience that tension in our lives. And as much as we might be tired or beaten down, war-weary and ready to go home, we praise God for today. He promises his present grace will instruct us, train us, teach us, not just once in the past, but for every day that he has us here. Brothers and sisters, this is not to say that you won't experience frustration of the flesh, warring against the sanctifying work of grace in your life. Training, again, is a process, and it's hard work. But praise God for this struggle, because this is evidence of grace working in your life. And we might, otherwise, we might be living easy but deluded lives. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, do you feel the struggle against your flesh? And if you do, then maybe it's that you know that deep within you're broken. God calls us to live sensibly and righteously, and that can only be accomplished by rooting yourselves in grace. There's no other way to live in light of reality. Another verse um, from the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, includes these lines. It says, "'Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." Uh, Pastor John Piper writes about living life between these two lines of amazing grace. If you're sitting here today, it's because grace has brought you safe thus far, and it's that training grace that will lead you home. Our life between those two lines is limited. And as we all know, you know, this, this earthly bodily life is finite, and our days are numbered. Today, we're one day closer to the end of our earthly pilgrimage than we were yesterday. And one day we'll see the end of our days in training and the beginning of a glorious eternity. So the first point was to root your living in God's grace revealed through Jesus in the past. Second, we saw God's grace that trains us to live godly lives in the present. And now, third, Richard, living in God's grace that holds out hope for the future. So God's grace that holds out hope for the future. Uh, let's look at verses 13 and 14. It says, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. So John Piper writes in his book, Future Grace, that it's the hope of future grace that fuels our living today. Yes, grace is God's pardon in passing over our past sins, but it's also the power and the beauty of God to keep you from sinning until we see the day when we see Jesus returning in glory. Future grace is the certainty that God will fulfill 
all of his promises from the ongoing work of salvation in us to the appearing of Jesus a second time in the future. So brothers and sisters, the best, the fulfillment of grace working in us is yet to come. You know, when I used to think about waiting for the Lord's return, I, I used to get images of, you know, endlessly waiting in a doctor's office or waiting at a red, at a red light. That's, that's passive waiting. But the word for wait here in verse 13 is active. It has a connotation of eagerness. When we read a text like this, we can be tempted to go into hibernation and just wait for Jesus to come back. But that's not the sense we get from reading verse 12, where grace is actively training us to live a certain way. So this waiting is certainly definitely not a passive state. In some translations of this verse, you'll find looking for the blessed hope. So there's an expectant attitude, and forward-looking attitude, longing and a longing in the, in the one who is tired and homesick. And it's in the hope of this future reality that he lives a life that's trained by grace. Uh, to further kind of get into this, the NIV, the NIV study Bible notes explains this waiting not in idleness, like, but like servants waiting for their master to return. And this implies a fervent readiness. And this is a reference back to Luke chapter 12, verse 36, where Jesus teaches that we're to be alert, ready to, to be ready for our master's return. So anyone who's ever stood guard or worked security, um, you, know what it's, you know that it's not an, a, a passive just waiting around. You're, you're waiting for something, and there's something at stake. So, of course, there's certainly the temptation to lose our focus and to grow tired when it seems like the waiting is never going to end. But when you do, remember that this is not a pointless waiting. But we're to eagerly expect this blessed hope. The early church knew this well and understood it deeply. Maranatha, or come Lord Jesus, was the common greeting and encouragement among those Christians. The oppression that they faced under Roman rule made the hope of Jesus appearing that much more tangible and significant in their lives. So let's look at verse 13 again. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so here we see again, uh, we, meant, we mentioned this in verse 11, but we see the word appearing again. Um, and it's the same word as, as we saw before. So the first appearing has happened. It's happened in the coming and the appearing of Jesus. And the second appearing that we see here in verse 13 is yet to come. John Stott says that Paul grounds his appeal in two appearings of Jesus, both of which bring salvation. And the second appearing will be glorious because that's when our training ends and our blessed hope is fulfilled. This points to the reality that we live in this in-between already not yet state. You might, you might have heard that before, already not yet. You know, Jesus has secured victory over sin and death when he died and rose again some 2,000 years ago. But we continue to live in this special in-between time while, where we're still battling the effects of sin and brokenness of this world. And while we're eagerly anticipating the second advent of Jesus when sin's influence will at last be abolished. 
Uh, there was a, a 19th century author named Canon Hay Aiken, and he, he was meditating on this passage. Um, and I really love uh, this, this image that he, that he paints. Um, he suggested that the two comings of Christ are like two windows in the school of grace. Through the western window, a solemn light streams from Mount Calvary. Through the eastern window shines the light of sunrising, the herald of a brighter day. Thus, the school of grace is well lighted, but we cannot afford to do without the light from either west or east. In this modern age, you know, our history books will never include events like Jesus' return, not only because it hasn't taken place yet, but the present age will never acknowledge or recognize Jesus' victory over sin. But in God's book and in reality, this final victory over sin is certain. The vic this victory is won through Jesus Christ, who, according to verse 14, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to, and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. So Jesus gave up himself in all of his sinless perfection to be the payment for our sins. His very blood redeems us and it covers us with, the right, with the righteousness in the face of God's judgment. So first, looking again in, in verse 14, Jesus gave himself so that we might be redeemed from all lawlessness. Back in verse 12, we saw the effect of training grace. It instructs us to renounce senseless and God-rejecting ways and instead teaches us to live self-controlled and sensible lives. And sensibility has to do with being in touch with reality, not being deluded by our own fleshly lusts and our desires. And second, in verse 14, it says, Jesus gave himself to cleanse himself, to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. This is the type of language that the Bible uses to speak of the nation of Israel, God's chosen nation. Exodus uh, chapter 19, verse 5, I'll read it for us. It says, Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So when it says a people for his own possession, there's the idea of being a peculiar people. That doesn't mean we're weird, but it means that those who are redeemed by God are his particular possession. We're under new ownership. And so when you see a, a sign on the street that says, um, above, a, above a store or a business that says, under new ownership, you know, what is your expectation? You expect there to be a change, hopefully a positive change. And here we are under the awesome, matchless ownership of our almighty maker and redeemer. Finally, in verse 14, it says that his redeemed people, who are his very own, are eager or zealous to do good works. You know, salvation is not a static state. It's not a one-and-done thing, like I said. It's a dynamic in a forward-moving state. So putting off law-breaking, rebellion, living for yourselves, and, and amazingly being, being in a state where we, where we desire God himself and we're eager to do good works. Do we do this to earn favor with God? No, because we already have his favor. The work of Jesus is inextricably tied to godly living. 
And this is the effect of grace. So in recent weeks, uh, PJ's been going through, uh, you know, the, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And to me, it's revealed a picture of what suffering looks like in the place of a, of a Christian's life. And that it's actually an integral part of living a life uh, following Jesus. Suffering and opposition are not explicit in the passage that we looked at today, but it's laced throughout Scripture in relation to godly living. Like we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, where it says, All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted, and you will experience suffering that you otherwise may not have to. But don't overlook the miracle buried in the first part of that, that you desire to live a godly life. That's Jesus' grace in your life. And we know that from this passage that it's a grace that will train you and will sustain you through those trials and suffering. And it's a grace that promises a hope that nothing in this world can measure up to. So take heart through your trials. Bethany Baptist Church, now to place these hard-hitting verses back into its context, Paul offers this as a theological basis for godly living within the context of a church. So to you, brothers and sisters, reflect on God's goodness in your life, your salvation, your ongoing training, and the hope that you have as you look ahead. And don't simply keep that to yourselves. Use your experience of grace to broaden another person's grasp of grace in their lives. So this is what Jerry Bridges writes in his book, Transforming Grace. He says, quote, We are brought into God's kingdom by grace. We are sanctified by grace. We receive both temporal and spiritual blessings by grace. We are motivated to obedience by grace. We are called to serve and enabled to serve by grace. We receive strength to endure trials by grace. And finally, we are glorified by grace. The entire Christian life is lived under the reign of God's grace. So in, in summary here, the three points was were to root your living in God's grace revealed through Jesus in the past. Root your living in God's grace that trains us to live godly lives in the present. And finally, to root your living in God's grace that holds out hope for the future. Some of you might know uh, this song called Grace Unmeasured uh, by Sovereign Grace. And as I was looking back at the chorus, it, it almost perfectly matches up with uh, the three points that we covered today. It goes, Grace paid for my sins and brought me to life. Grace clothed me with power to do what is right. And grace will lead me to heaven where I'll see your face and never cease to thank you for your grace. So as we wrap up here, I want to take you back to that, that river that I introduced to you at the, at the beginning and imagine yourself standing at the, at the banks of that river. So you look upstream, and off in the far distance you know, are the headwaters that are feeding this mighty torrent of water in front of you. So this is the source without which, without which there would be no river at all. And then you look downstream, and there on the horizon you see the ocean, here is love, vast as the ocean. This is the ocean of future grace, vast, unlimited in supply, and enveloping all the mess of life, 
under its glassy surface and stretching from eternity to eternity. The evidence of grace in the past and the assurance of grace for the future, this is the backdrop for your living today. So the scenery is breathtaking, but now you look down at your feet and realize from the place where you're standing is the only place where you can actually touch and experience the coolness of the water. So today, there is a new dose of grace from this never-ceasing stream of mercy. Let the grace that you've experienced and are anticipating shape you to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age. You know, God's grace through Jesus rescues us and trains us to be godly people who live in hope of Christ's return. So here's our, our call to action. Examine your roots. Test your motivations. Make sure you're, you are firmly planted in the enabling grace of God before simply trying harder. If you fail to root yourself in grace, you'll bury yourself under a mountain of do's and don'ts that you won't understand, that's disconnected from joy, and you'll siphon off the life-giving and transformative power of grace in your life. And you may even prove yourself to be the, the seed in Jesus' parable that sprouts but quickly dies because there's no root giving life to what's above the surface. However, if you do root your living in God's grace, then you'll experience the ongoing renewal and the nourishment of being trained by grace on a daily basis and grow in your eagerness and your expectation for Jesus' appearing. So plant yourself in the riverbed of grace and drink deeply of God's streams of mercy. Father, we come thirsty to partake of your life-giving waters. Cause us first to understand and internalize the weight of what your grace has done and what it promises for our future. And second, compel us to live lives that are being trained under your kind hand for, your, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.